0: I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker for today, Valerie Crooks. Valerie's going to be talking about medical tourism. Please welcome Valerie. Valerie, thank thank you. you. (laughs) Thank you very much. So um, as was just mentioned, I am here today to give a bit of a talk related to medical tourism. Um, And I wanted to start off just situating myself and explaining why it is that I actually research medical tourism. Uh, So this is actually me. many, many years ago. Um, And I'm a health geographer by training. I'm a faculty member, a full professor at Simon Fraser University. And as a health geographer, I'm interested in understanding issues related to, for example, why are people here healthier than people there? What's the relationship between how we think about places and how that relates to health? But for myself, I'm a health services researcher. I'm interested in a lot of issues related to access to healthcare, And I'm also interested in understanding why people cross national borders in order to access health care elsewhere, as well as some other mobilities. So that's how I got into sort of this gig that I am involved in now. So, <clears throat> for myself, I consider myself to be an expert in what I would call global healthcare mobility. So, when patients, healthcare providers, information like health information, as well as financial capital crosses borders in order to facilitate access to healthcare, training for health services. And I'm going to talk about a few other mobilities in this presentation, but really framing it around medical tourism, which is what I specialize in. But the mobilities that I'm most interested in are those that fall into what I call the triple U's. These are mobilities that are untracked, untraced, and unregulated. So, there are actually some movements related to healthcare that involve crossing national borders that we do have some degree of tracking and tracing. So, in some cases, for example, the movement of healthcare workers, sometimes we do have some tracking and tracing. We sometimes have bilateral agreements with other countries in terms of how many healthcare workers we're going to bring in. Also, in Canada, we do have the ability to use the portability aspect of the Canada Health Act to access healthcare elsewhere, funded through our system. And and that is called out-of-country care or cross-border care. So that's one that we also have some tracking and tracing for. But the ones that I'm interested in are the ones that we don't count, but we know exist. And these are mobilities that are actually transforming our healthcare system here, and they're also transforming healthcare systems abroad. So this is where my interest lies. So, <clears throat> like I said at the start, I'm here to talk to you about medical tourism, and I just want to make sure that we all start off on the same page because. People sometimes have different understandings of what this term is relative to what it is that I study. So when I talk about medical tourism, I'm talking about The intentional movement of people across international borders to access privately arranged medical care that's typically paid for out of pocket. And I just want to emphasize that word intentional. So if I go abroad, um, I'm going to Florida for the holidays to spend time with my parents, if I break my leg while I'm there and I need to go to the hospital and use my travel health insurance policy, that's unintentional. I didn't intend to cross the border to access health services. But in this case with medical tourism I'm talking about people who are using care intentionally when they're abroad so it's not emergency care it's not care for expats um, who are living elsewhere and accessing care where they live and reside I'm talking about when people specifically access care that they wish to access and out-of-pocket payment meaning that it's not that cross-border care that I was talking about it's an individual making a private decision typically not involving any form of referral so also we're talking about individuals who are doing their own private research to figure out where they want to go, which surgeon or doctor or facility they want to visit, and why they want to do that. So that's the basis of the work that I do in uh, my research program. So medical tourism, I already mentioned, it's as I referred to, an untracked, untraced, unregulated mobility. It's one that we don't have reliable numbers for, and I'm going to touch on that in a few minutes. But even though we don't have the numbers, we know this mobility exists, and we know there's a few reasons why people opt to access health care abroad. And I've mentioned a few of them here. So one of the reasons why some people, include Canadian, including Canadians, choose to access care elsewhere are because of wait lists in their home country. They got waitlisted for a procedure, and they want the procedure faster than what they can at home. So they jump the queue by going abroad and paying for it privately um sometimes related to cost so in the canadian context for example although i told you that this is an untracked untraced mobility um i'm often contacted by the media to give commentary on medical tourism and i say that Because I'll just, sorry, to frame what I was about to say, often the first question is, well, how many Canadians go abroad and where do they go? And I give them a whole reason as to why it is that I can't answer their question. But based on all my work, more than a decade of deep research in this area, what I can say reasonably confidently is what Canadians are most often going for is dental care. So in relation to contextualizing it in our Canadian experience, we know that that's something we pay for privately or have private insurance to cover. So that's one of the things that people go for. Availability, so sometimes people are actually looking to access procedures that aren't readily available in their home jurisdiction. So they may have to travel to begin with. So for example, someone coming from northern British Columbia may need to travel down to the lower mainland to access. And then when they start to sort of figure out if this is something they have to bear some travel costs for, it may even be more cost effective to go to another country for it. Issues of quality and privacy sometimes come up. So for example, in relation to some cosmetic procedures, some people want complete privacy, anonymity, confidentiality. They don't want people to know. They want to return home, and they happen to have gotten pregnant on that lovely holiday they had in the Caribbean without the story of how that occurred coming publicly or in relation to some cosmetic procedures. And then finally, circumvention. And what I mean by that is actively getting around some regulatory restriction in your home jurisdiction that is making it impossible for you to access the care that you wish to have. So it could be that a procedure is experimental. It's untested, unproven. Um, You are not concerned about the state of evidence. You say, I'm comfortable with the fact that I don't know if this is a proven treatment. I want it. Um, Often those decisions are driven by a combination of hope and sometimes desperation, people who are looking for any option to deal with what it is that they want. And sometimes also it can be around access to specific kinds of medical devices. So it could be a particular device that hasn't been approved here for a particular kind of, let's just say, joint replacement, and you know it that's readily available elsewhere. So you're circumventing. You're going around some restriction in your home environment that's going to allow you to access what you want to in another country. So these are some of the main drivers behind medical tourism, why it is that people travel to other countries for care. And I'm going to touch more on this throughout my presentation. But I just want to, from the start, acknowledge the fact that medical tourism is a really complex practice. It involves a whole range of different kinds of groups of individuals. It's not just about an interaction between a doctor and a patient. So here, for example, these are just some screenshots from some medical tourism facilitator websites, as well as individual clinic websites. So facilitators, these are effectively the travel agents of the medical tourism sector. Um, in Canada, we typically have anywhere from 15 to 30 facilitation companies operating at any particular time, um, a very difficult group of companies to keep track of in terms of how many exist. They open rapidly and they also close rapidly. It's very much a cottage industry. but. There are individuals who have built networks with healthcare providers abroad, and they try and leverage these networks to help Canadians who are thinking about going abroad figure out where it is that they would like to go, based on the relationships they have. There's other kinds of intermediaries, of course. We can't negate the fact that if you're traveling abroad, you're going to also be intersecting with the travel and tourism sector um, in your journey. So there's a whole range of individuals involved in this practice. And in this presentation, I'm going to touch on a few others that exist. In my work, what it is that I do up on the top of Burnaby Mountain and um, internationally is that I explore sort of three things in relation to medical tourism. So I look at issues of equity. Um, So issues of fairness. So I ask questions like who's actually impacted by this practice, especially abroad, and how are they impacted? Um, Whose interests are underrepresented or overrepresented, especially in destination countries? I do quite a lot of work in the Caribbean region. Um, And you're going to see that come up because what I'm going to do is take you through a whole bunch of different examples to tell you what it is that I've learned through this decade-long research program that I've done. I look at ethical issues. So I ask questions like, who's actually harmed by this practice? And I don't necessarily mean harmed in terms of medical insult. I'm not necessarily talking about someone whose surgery was quote unquote botched. I'm talking larger social issues. Who's benefiting? And also, who holds responsibility for, for example, instilling benefits and reducing harms? And then some practical safety issues, like what are some of the risks associated with this practice? And also, what are patients' own informational needs? And I'm not going to touch much on this last question but one of the reasons why I look at informational needs is because there's very little third-party information available and what I mean by that is information that is outside of that produced by the clinics abroad that are looking to attract medical tourists so it makes it really difficult to actually give informed consent because who's giving you the information that you would need in order to have a full understanding of the scope and scale of what it is that you're deciding to do so What I'm going to do for the rest of my time here is I'm going to allow you to skip the boarding passes, skip the mosquitoes, skip the tired nights, skip the sunburns, skip all of that. And I'm going to take you on a journey with me to tell you about eight big lessons that I've learned about medical tourism from all of the work I've done. I'm not going to talk about study design. I'm not going to talk about specific methods. If anyone has questions, you're welcome to ask me. Um, But what I want to do is talk across all the work that I've done to share with you some lessons. And what I'm going to do in each lesson is I'm going to take you to a specific country um, or a specific case that I've looked at in order to frame that. So that's how I'm going to frame the rest of this talk. And I will say, actually, right now, this is forming the basis of a book I'm writing, where every chapter is one of these lessons. So this is an opportune time for me to be here because I'm in the stretch of writing that book and so it's really wonderful to have the opportunity to stand here and talk my way through those remaining chapters so the first lesson that I want to start out with and I alluded to it a few minutes ago is that it's important to actually question everything you hear about medical tourism there's a whole bunch of facts and figures that are out there there are numbers put out by consulting firms that say X number of Canadians travel every year uh, abroad, or why number of Americans are looking to access health care. Whatever it might be, I hear these same numbers circulating all the time. I've had the chance to sit in many policy meetings um, throughout the Caribbean in countries that are looking to become destinations. I was also seconded at one point in time to do a special project for the BC Ministry of Health around medical tourism. In all of those cases, I get the same numbers cited to me. And actually, all those numbers are wrong. And that's usually what I start off with explaining. Some of them are useful, but they're all wrong. So just a quick example. Um, Who here has traveled abroad in the last year? Okay, so a good number of us. So when you return to Canada, you fill out your form. When you're coming back, you're going to say whether or not you're carrying more than, what is it, $10,000 in cash, whether or not you've been on a farm. You're never asked if you were in a hospital. If you had a procedure abroad, that's really our main point of information about what Canadians are doing when they're abroad. If we're not asking this question at that point, and I'm not trying to argue that we should, but if we're not asking this question at that point, we actually have no population level sense of how many Canadians are going. So all the numbers that are put out are based on assumptions. Most of those assumptions are wrong. They're informed, but they're wrong. the challenge is that these wrong numbers are used to drive policy decisions, especially in a lot of countries that are looking to enter the sector, many small countries with limited resources that are making decisions based on these numbers that are put out there. But I'm going to give you an example, and it's not about a number. And I'm going to tell you why you need to question everything about medical tourism. And this is an example that's coming from Canada. This is actually a photo from my office. on the top of of Burnaby Mountain. But I'm going to situate every example. So this is a familiar landscape to you guys. Um, And I'm going to situate every example by telling you where it's going to come from. And actually, this example comes from the very first study that I ever did on medical tourism. It was the first study ever funded in Canada to look at medical tourism. And in this study, what I was interested in was understanding people's decision making behind why they opted to go abroad, why they decided to go abroad. Um, And, you know, whenever you're a researcher and you're doing your first study um, in a new topic, everything is eye-opening. And there's so many memorable moments that you're never going to forget. And you carry them with you, and they drive forward the questions you ask. And one of them was an interview that I did, this is a pseudonym, um, with a woman who I've just named here Jolene. And this was a real interview. This really happened. I've just sort of changed a few of the details in order to maintain anonymity. But Jolene was a Canadian who went abroad as a medical tourist. So she went abroad because she characterized um, a wait time that she felt was unacceptable or not tolerable to her. So she was assigned to a two-year wait list in her home province. Uh, for knee replacement, and she had significant pain and discomfort from osteoarthritis. She wanted care faster and wanted to figure out what her options were, Um, and so she actually sought the assistance of a medical tourism facilitator. I mentioned what these companies are a few minutes ago, the travel agents of the medical tourism industry. Um, And in this case, the medical tourism facilitator um, connected her with going to, in this case, I've noted here, Costa Rica. But it was a country in the the Caribbean region. Um, And she was actually accompanied abroad by her partner, Chris. Um, And the interesting part of Jolene's story is that the medical tourism facilitator was fairly new. She was starting her business. Um, and she wanted to have some publicity in order to gain greater visibility for her business. And so she said to Jolene, well, Jolene, I have a, a, an offer for you. And I'm just going to put it out there. But. I've had the opportunity, or have the upcoming opportunity, to be part of a a story in the newspaper um, about my business. And I was interested in having someone that is um, thinking about using my services to be part of this. Now, the take that I want to have in this story is that, effectively, I'd like to look incredibly negatively upon the Canadian health system. Um, And if you would be willing to be part of this story and really basically bash the system, and talk incredibly negatively about your physician in the story, I'll be willing to give you a better package. So I'm going to keep it at the same price point, but I'm going to give you a better hotel room, um, and I'm going to also change the flight as well to give you some, uh, like a better uh, flight package. So you know, probably flying in business class or whatever it might be. And Jolene was really struck by this, um, and in the end, she decided not to do that. She wasn't ethically comfortable with going that route and creating a story just for her personal benefit. But if she had have done that, you could imagine the narrative that was going to come out of that particular area Around medical tourism. So, when I started off with this lesson that I've learned about medical tourism, I was giving you some quantitative reasons why I don't believe a lot of what I hear around medical tourism. This is interesting because it's a qualitative reason. It's that, you know, we have to think what are the motives behind the stories we hear? What's really going on? So, if the individual patient narratives aren't always accurate, and then you add the complexity of the fact these are untracked, untraced, so pretty much 99% of the numbers are wrong, unless you're talking about the number of international patients a specific hospital receives and that hospital is willing to disclose fully, um, then it means that actually a lot of people are making decisions around medical tourism with information that's not fully complete. And I'm not just talking about individual patients, but like I was alluding to before, I'm also talking about policy officials that are based in countries that would like to become destinations for medical tourism. that are looking to what, what's out there, what's published around their decisions. So they might see, for example, that newspaper article if Jolene had have gone forward with it, and they would bring it forward in their ministerial meetings. And again, I see this all the time. They would bring it forward and say, look at what's happening with the Canadian market. How do we seize this opportunity? So that is the first lesson that I wanted to share with you. The second lesson that I wanted to share, and again, this comes from, I couldn't even tell you how many hospitals and clinics I've been in now. I've probably done work in more than 20 countries, had the opportunity to speak to so many different people. And this is something that's really struck me, which is that, as I've said here, the competition for international patients is tough. It is a business. Um, it's the business of selling health or health care, depending on how you want to frame it. The competition is tough. and especially for patients who are thought of as being desirable. So those are going to be your higher income patients, your patients that uh, likely are coming from global north countries. So I mean, that's really true of all businesses, for the most part. Everyone is competing for, pa- for, sorry, for customers. Um, and so there's nothing unique about that. But in relation to the sale of healthcare what it does is something really particular. And that is that it makes destinations, it makes hospitals, it makes clinics. Think about what can our competitive advantage be? How can we potentially thrive in this sector? So I'm going to take us to the Bahamas in this example. As I mentioned a few moments ago, I do a lot of work in the Caribbean region. Every case that I'll take us through in in this presentation is somewhere that I've been for my work. And I'm taking us to the Bahamas because I want to share a particular example of how a country is looking to thrive in the context of this competition. So the Caribbean region itself is home to many small island nations, um, many nations that actually compete for one another in the tourism sector. Many of these countries view medical tourism as a diversification of their tourism product. Interest in this sector is usually driven by two groups, trade representatives and tourism representatives, not healthcare representatives or health system representatives. And so in that sort of nature of already uh, coming from a region where there's competition for tourists, there's now this added element of competition for patients. So what the Bahamas has done is said, well, what can we do as our competitive advantage? They've gone the route of, circumvention tourism. I mentioned what that is a few moments ago. That's when you're going to leave your home jurisdiction to access care that's not available for you at home for specific regulatory reasons or because it might be illegal. So what the Bahamas is doing is that they are actually trying to have in their, some of their clinics procedures that are under review with the FDA, for example, but that have yet to be approved. They're looking to attract high-paying international patients, mostly Americans, who are willing to take that you know, one hour or two hour flight from Miami and go to the Bahamas for that expensive care that they can't get at home. So some of them, for example, one was um, a treatment for prostate cancer, for example, where both the patient and their physician would travel to the Bahamas. But it's really interesting in relation to this circumvention tourism angle that they've been pursuing. Um, And I just want to share some of the points that come to my mind after studying this for over a decade. So there are definitely a number of concerns with this sort of circumvention tourism angle. As I've said here, one of them is that it really does complicate your ability to make informed consent unless you fully understand all the reasons why it's not available to you in your home jurisdiction. Secondly is that you're actually undermining the regulatory uh, protections that are in place. There's a reason why these regulators exist, why these regulatory bodies exist. Um, If you understand why they exist, why they have yet to approve a procedure and you knowingly choose to go abroad, that's one thing. But if you don't understand the mechanics behind it, uh, why a procedure is not approved in your home jurisdiction, then again, this is also threatening informed consent. And then also, broadly speaking, it's also sort of losing or there's this loss of the regulatory control. Um, that can potentially threaten patients' health and safety. So you're choosing to go abroad for experimental therapies that are going to be made available relatively close to your home country, um, in a country where the language is the same as yours, um, where you're probably going to have a good understanding of the price points. But it's not all bad news. And I'm going to revisit in the last lesson. There is this really interesting dualism around most of the points that I'm going to raise. Because although there's these sort of negative drawbacks that I would associate with this practice, there are also advantages. So it creates new employment opportunities in a small island nation. Well, in the case of Bahamas, I should say a small islands nation, given how many islands the country is actually made up of. Um, But it creates new opportunities. So you're going to have new employment positions, new training opportunities for health workers. Individual patients are going to have the ability to gain greater control over their treatment options because it says it gives you the ability to say, I'm going to go abroad. I'm not going to stay domestically. I want that procedure, and I can afford it, or I can borrow for it, or I can take out a bank loan for it, or everyone in my family can contribute so that I can have access to it. It also offers that economic diversification. So if you're looking to diversify your tourism product, and you're trying to find a very specific niche in that context of competition, Why not? Why not go for those procedures that aren't regulated yet? You've got people interested in them, and they can't access them at home. And then finally, it's offering an a country or a destination the ability to compete for international patients, not on the basis for cost, on sorry, not on the basis of cost. So actually, it's price point that countries or destinations or individual clinics often compete against one another for. A country like the Bahamas that's a, a higher income level, a higher um, socioeconomic status level, it's not going to be able to compete for cost in the same way that maybe a country that is lo- located elsewhere in the Caribbean or in Central America is. So, I don't know why that just happened. (laughs) Um, So the third sort of lesson that I wanted to share with you is that medical tourism, it is a global practice. There are people that are going sort of all over the world for this practice. What happens is that it's the most sensational cases that get highlighted. And so because of that, we're thinking that many people are really going far, far, far away. Um, So it's not uncommon, we'll see here um, news coverage of somebody who's gone to India, for example. People are going all over the place, but for the most part, something I've learned from my work is that it's actually a highly regional practice. So it is global in scope. The medical tourism sort of industry, if you want to call it as such, is global. There's a lot of movements. There's a lot of movements happening that actually move outside of regions, but for the most part, it actually thrives on regional movements. This may sound quite logical, but in fact, if you look at the coverage of medical tourism, like I was saying in the media, it's going to be the sensational cases that get covered. It makes you think people are going really, really far away all the time for care. Um, This is also true in those policy meetings that I've had the opportunity to sit in, as well as even some of the academic literature. So in this case, I'm just going to give you an example from Colombia. I was there a few years ago. Um, It's a country that's actually looking actively to get into the medical tourism market. Um, uh, One of its main sort of economic strategies, economic development strategies, I think they've got nine or ten that are stated as part of their economic plan, and medical tourism is one of them. So it wants to get into medical tourism um, as a basis for building its economy. One of the things that's quite interesting is that when I was there, I had the opportunity to visit a number of hospitals. And on my very last day, um, I was talking with the CEO of a hospital. And it was just by chance. I was actually going from Columbia to Barbados. I do a lot of work in Barbados. Um, And I happened to mention that I was on my way to Barbados. And the CEO said, oh, Barbados, Uh, I'm actually going there in a few days from now, too. And I thought, oh, that's really funny. Why are you going to Barbados? And he said, well, because we want patients from Barbados. We want people to come from Barbados to Colombia. Now, it's quite logical, that's a regional movement, but what sort of tends to get characterized, what gets profiled, are those big international movements. So there's this sense that um, Colombia, in developing its sector, would want to be reaching out, getting those American patients, getting those Canadian patients that might want to go. There's this sense that Americans are always sort of the global target. That's who you want as your patient group. But actually, here, you see a country that's got this as part of its strategy, and what they're trying to do is build it out from regional movements. Well, people in proximal countries want to come? You know, Let's see if we can get them here and the strategies that we can do that, and then potentially build it out. I'd have to say, too, just as an aside, I often call um, American patients when I'm in conversations internationally, these sort of mythical unicorns. There's this sense that there are hundreds of thousands of really unhappy Americans who already have their passport and already have lots of money, and they're just looking to go elsewhere for their health care. That's not really true. I've been all over the place. I've been to so many facilities that have been built around that promise. And it's not the field of dreams from that movie with Kevin Costner. It's not if you build it, they will come. It's if you build it. Some might come, and then you got to figure out a way to diversify really quickly before your hospital becomes a, a ghost facility, which I've seen many times. Um, Oppositely, I've also been in some countries um, or been in some clinics and facilities that have said that part of their plan for developing the sector is actively to not target Americans. And that's because, I think as many of us here would probably know, um, they're thought of as a fairly litigious patient group, a patient group you probably don't want to mingle with very much if you want to avoid some of the potential (laughs) reputational harms that could come about from uh, medical tourism. So the fourth lesson that I want to mention is that I've learned that diasporas um, and members of the diaspora communities, or diaspora communities, are, active, are actually really important to the medical tourism sector. And meanwhile, they're very rarely discussed. So again, I mentioned a few moments ago this really sensational coverage of medical tourism that we often see. Some person that's never traveled before in their life has bought a plane ticket to go to Thailand, and they're going to have spinal surgery there. Actually. A lot of the people, not all, but many of the people who are going abroad for care um, are people who have some connection to the destination. Not in every case, but in many of the cases that I've looked at, especially in countries where the sector is new. The first patient group are often members of the broader diaspora community. They're people who are accessing care when they're returning home. So, just as a a quick example. This comes from work I had the opportunity to do in Jamaica. I was part of a team that was actually hired to develop the policy platform around medical tourism in Jamaica. And one of the things that I specifically had to do was I had to go and visit a whole bunch of dental and healthcare clinics to talk to them about who are their existing international patients, who is it that they would like to target, every time it was the diaspora, the diaspora. We want those patients. We understand the realities of this market. We know that's who it is that we want to attract and who we want to treat. Meanwhile, at the policy level conversation, It was those unicorns that I mentioned a few moments ago. It was this idea that like a whole bunch of people who have no connection to Jamaica are going to want to come, because if you build it, they're going to come. Meanwhile, it's diasporas that actually are really important. This is true in so many of the countries, especially small countries, uh, countries in the Caribbean and Central America that I've had the opportunity to visit, countries that are getting involved in what I often call medical tourism 2.0. So medical tourism 1.0. In my opinion, this uh, this was the sort of first iteration of medical tourism, came after the massive financial crash in the Asian region um, in, what was it, like the mid-'90s, late-'90s. And what happened was there were a number of large hospitals that had extra capacity. And governments were looking to fill that capacity and thought, could we go internationally and fill this capacity? That's the 1.0 story. The 2.0 is that if you build it, they will come. If we can do it, let's build a purpose-built facility. Let's get a private facility that we're going to build from the ground up and bring international patients here. So it's not about using unused capacity in your sector already. It's trying to figure out how we can build new services in order to attract them. So anyway, that was a bit of a side point. But the point here with this lesson is that diaspora communities are a significant driver and a significant patient group in the medical tourism sector. So it's not this whole idea of these are people who have never been here before that we're going to convince to come. So the fifth lesson is that, in my experience, global healthcare mobilities intersect and this um, often adds some complexity to understanding the ethical and equity issues that actually exist with medical tourism. So, at the start of my talk today, I mentioned that I'm interested in global healthcare mobilities. The one I've studied the most is medical tourism, but there's all different kinds of reasons why patients, healthcare providers, those that are in the process of medical education cross borders. Um, And like I was trying to say with this point, um, oftentimes there's an intersection between these mobilities that can create a lot of complexity. So first, I'm going to take you to St. Lucia. Um, And here, the intersection I want to talk about is between medical tourism and offshore medical schools. Offshore medical schools, I love to research them. I have a lot of things to say about these schools. There's more than 50 little tiny, for the most part, medical schools in the Caribbean region. They're actively, aggressively marketing themselves to get two kinds of student groups, typically Canadians and Americans who haven't gotten into medical school here or who have opted to just completely circumvent that process of application. They don't want to go through three, four, five years of applying. I'm just going to go abroad and get my my medical education in the Caribbean. The second group are individuals who view practice or training in the Caribbean region as a launch point for practicing in the United States. So these are often students coming from Nigeria, Pakistan, India, who are thinking that by getting closer in proximity to the US and doing their practical training in the US, that they may be able to actually practice in the US in the end. I'm not here to talk about offshore medical schools. I have a lot of really critical insights. They drive me nuts a little bit. Um, But why do I even know about them? Because they intersect all the time with medical tourism. Before I studied medical tourism, I didn't have a thought about offshore medical schools other than the fact that I was based at a university where the halls, at SFU are plastered with posters for these schools. So I knew they existed. I just hadn't thought about them. Well, when I was in St. Lucia, so this is a country that's looking to develop a medical tourism sector, small Caribbean country, uh, fairly close to Barbados, another country that I'm going to talk about, Trinidad and Tobago. So in the in the lower Antilles or lesser Antilles part of the region. Um, when I was there, one of the things that we had the opportunity to do is talk to um, a few people who represented some of these offshore medical schools. So St. Lucia, tiny country, six offshore medical schools. (laughs) It's it's really not a sustainable model. Um, And also in these schools, students have to do their practical training abroad, because there's not enough capacity in the Caribbean region to have practical training for hundreds or possibly thousands of internationally training medical students. The intersection here is that these offshore medical schools, the directors that we had a chance to speak to, they were really excited that St. Lucia was trying to develop a medical tourism sector. And the reason why is because they thought, oh, there could be some great clinical spin-offs. So for our students, for example, who aren't able to get approval to do their practical training in the states, maybe they would be able to do it here in St. Lucia. So they saw the potential for some crossover benefits. Um, there are other ways that medical tour- tourism intersects with offshore medical schools. But I just wanted to give that as one example. Another also comes from the Caribbean region, and in this case, Cayman Islands. So Cayman Islands, actually fairly close to Miami, um, close to Jamaica, so different region of the, or different part of the Caribbean region. Cayman Islands is a fascinating case because um, in the main island, Grand Cayman Island, there is a fairly large healthcare complex that's being built by an international um, developer, an international physician, who is actually looking. Um, He's from India, and he was looking to literally export his model of of heart surgery somewhere closer to the US to get those unicorns to come fly down from the States, go to Cayman Islands, and have a surgeon from India perform. Um, so they built this hospital. So I was actually, this is the, the lane where it's built. I was there after the hospital was approved, but before they broke ground. Um, so the first phase of the hospital actually exists. The mobility that I want to talk about, the intersection here, is between medical tourism and health worker migration, the movement of health workers. It was really, really interesting, because not only did the surgeon want to export his model of heart surgery and bring it closer to the US to capture that unicorn patient group, but He also wanted to have new employment opportunities for Indian physicians, Indian nurses. So this hospital has about 70 staff who are from India. Um, And it was really interesting because, as some of you may know, if you have your medical training and certification or licensure from one country and you're looking to practice in another jurisdiction, your licensure has to be recognized in that that jurisdiction or oftentimes you have to do some form of retraining or relicensing in order to do that. At the first point in time when this surgeon was shopping around and he shopped, I mean, he went to a whole bunch of Caribbean countries. He talked about his model. He talked about wanting to open this up. He was in the Bahamas. He was in Barbados. He was elsewhere. What he was shopping for was the country that was going to give him the lowest regulatory barriers because medical tourism on the business side of things is often the race to the regulatory bottom. And he wanted to know what country was actually willing to change their legislation, their regulations, to allow Indian trained doctors and nurses to practice there without having to retrain, relicense, recertify. And the Cayman Islands said, yep, we'll do it. So. This is not to suggest that there are not some jobs for local comedians in this facility, but the intersection I wanted to point out here is in relation to uh, health worker migration. The reason why I wanted to point it out is because when we're talking about some of the harms and benefits of these facilities, often people say, well, it's a place of employment for people. Sure, but then I come along and I say, for who? Is it local citizens that are being provided with the best jobs? I'm not too sure when we talk about a case like this. So the sixth lesson that I wanted to point out or bring forward is that the decision of an individual patient to go abroad actually tends to impact directly and indirectly the lives of a whole network of individuals. This is actually a really important lesson, and this is a point I've been making since the start of my research program. So for me, I'm a qualitative researcher. I deal with words, stories, policies, narratives. I don't deal with numbers. Not that I don't like them, but I'm studying a mobility where numbers don't exist. And oftentimes, grant reviewers, um, in order to sort of approve a research project, they want to understand the impact. So they want the numbers, and I can't give them the numbers. So this is the point that I make all the time. The numbers aren't there. I can tell you all the reasons why, but I can tell you that the decision of anyone Canadian to go abroad, it actually impacts a whole network of individuals. So why just focus on what that number of patients are when there's a whole range of people who are actually affected by this practice? And that range of people are who we need to think about, and not just the individual patient. So bringing it back to my work in Canada, for example, one of the things that I've learned is that many, not all, but many medical tourists don't travel abroad on their own. They're oftentimes accompanied by a friend or a family member. And those friends or family members are involved in some form of informal caregiving this is something we're becoming more attentive to as a society understanding the impacts of informal caregiving the risks to the individual caregiver of taking on care work can you imagine those risks and how they become amplified when you're doing that and not just internationally but also in that transnational context caring for someone who's just had a hip replacement while they're going through transiting through multiple airports that's not going to be fun I had the opportunity to do some interviews with people in Canada who had gone abroad as an informal caregiver, so a friend or a family member. These are some of the key roles that we found out that they undertake. One is that they're often knowledge brokers, so they're the individual who actually facilitates information transfer between physicians and doctors abroad and the patient. Um, Also they're often looked to clarify things, to ask questions on behalf of the patient, to retain information when the next appointment is going to be. Also they're there as companions, so they're there to provide emotional support, to provide hands-on care, which can be really complex, following a surgical procedure. And then often involved in some form of navigation. So they're actually the coordinator of the care. They're remembering appointments. They're figuring out logistically how to get around. And then also that logistical information gathering. So understanding the travel routes, the transit options, all of those kinds of things. It's a pretty extensive list of roles. And this is only a fraction of what they do. Um, But this is a great example of one of those people that we don't think of if we just focus on how many Canadians go abroad for surgery. We're missing this. This network of impact, in this case, this individual who's taken time off work, who visited their family doctor before they went because they wanted to make sure they would be OK, the travel medicine clinic at home that they visited, the things that they did while they were abroad. Another re- different group that I just thought I would share, this comes from work I did in Barbados, where I brought together a l- group of lawyers. And I've never really thought about the ways that lawyers can, should, or might be involved in medical tourism. I wanted to gather them together to say, Is there a role for lawyers? What is it that you guys would be involved in in relation to this sector? In a country that's actively looking to get into medical tourism, and also, as a side note, is aggressively getting into the offshore medical school sector. It's employing, or sorry, it's diversifying its tourism sector through these kinds of mobilities. So interestingly, in relation to the lawyers that I had a chance to speak to, they were talking about some of the key roles they envision for themselves as the sector unfolds. So trying to look at things like liability protections, including malpractice insurance, trying to understand if there's barriers within immigration law, especially in relation to that health health worker migration issue. If a physician is coming in, um, what are the barriers for them practicing there? Looking at any gaps around physician licensing, trying to look at the kinds of corporate ownership structures that would be really desirable in order to have benefits locally when there's international investment happening. And then finally, and this was really interesting, I wasn't expecting it to come up, and it dominated most of the conversation, was that the lawyers felt that they had a huge duty to actively protect the reputation of Barbados as a safe um, and sound destination. In a very small island nation, all it takes are one or two stories to go internationally, to have hundreds, if not thousands, of people saying, "Ah, I don't think that we're going to go to Barbados this year. The seventh lesson that I want to share is that there really are always winners, quote unquote, and losers when it comes to medical tourism. Um, I am often asked, is medical tourism a good practice or a harmful practice? And I actually usually say, well, it depends on who it might be. It can be really helpful for some. It can be harmful for others. There's always going to be people who win, and there's always going to be people who lose. A quick example really out there in terms of where you probably thought I was going to take you today. Yes, I have been to Mongolia for research on medical tourism. It has one of the world's fastest growing economies, one of the fastest growing group of people who are suddenly becoming middle class, upper middle class. People who are having money to spend privately on health care that they never did before. The health system itself is basically a post-Soviet health system. It's incredibly cold. I don't just mean temperature-wise. I mean in terms of, <coughs> of dynamics, in terms of how you interact with patients. Um, people are looking for a different style of care. And what's happening is that the international markets are paying attention. And they're saying, we want to bring Mongolians abroad in order to access care, and this is happening routinely. There's a a very well-known hospital in Thailand that treats a large number of international patients every year. It actually commissions multiple times a year an entire plane and brings it to Ulaanbaatar to fill with patients to fly to Thailand. So what's happening is that in Mongolia, they're actually recognizing this is happening. And some of the health system and policy officials are saying, we've got to do some things about it. So these are some of the things they're saying that they need to do in order to retain these patients. So again, this context here is the winners and losers. They're recognizing that they're a loser, (laughs) and they want to stop that loss. So they're saying, well, we need to increase the the health system financing. We need to make the system more desirable. We need to actually also have health system uh, expenditures to become more efficient um, and lessen the political influence. There was a lot of discussion that I heard around corruption within the sector, and that's the reason why they're never going to make it a more desirable place to treat upper middle class and other individuals who are able to afford to go abroad. Enhance the training opportunities, also incentivize health system improvements, so make it that there's a reason why you want to benefit. And then change that culture of care so that it's not so cold, not just temperature-wise, but also in terms of how you interact. But this brings me to the final lesson that I wanted to share with you, um, the final point that I'm going to make. From all the work that I've done, I just confidently said there are always winners and losers. But, The final point that I want to make is actually determining who wins and who loses really depends on perspective, and this is where things get so complicated, not only when you're trying to figure out who's harmed by this practice and who benefits from it, but also who's responsible for addressing harms and instilling benefits. And I'll give you a really quick example. This comes from Guatemala, a country that's also looking to get into the medical tourism sector for a whole bunch of reasons. Had a chance to do um, interviews with stakeholders in in Guatemala talking to them about the potential harms and benefits and changes they anticipated around medical tourism. One of the groups we focused on were health workers. So what are the things they anticipated around these impacts on health workers? The first was that there may be a push towards meeting international standards in training and practice if you want to bring in more international patients. The second is that they anticipated greater English language opportunities coming up. The third is that there is concern, but also awareness, that there may be a movement of health workers, and probably the best health workers, from the public sector into that private sector to treat those international patients. You're going to have new jobs, but it's also going to open new forms of labor market competition. And there may also be demand for certain kinds of subspecialists, high-level subspecialists. Now if we look at a list like this, it depends on perspective as to whether or not any one of these points is a harm or a benefit. Each point can be argued from both sides. As to whether or not it's advancing Guatemala's incredibly inequitable, highly segmented health system or whether it's going to benefit the country. And this is where the challenge comes. Because if it's an issue of perspective, then it becomes very difficult to create policy and regulatory changes that are actually going to instill benefits for all of the local people. So I'm using this case of Guatemala just to highlight that complexity because you don't have to be an expert in health systems to look at these five points and imagine how you could say each one of them is potentially a benefit and also potentially a harm. Let's just take this this last one, increasing subspecialist demand. That's new jobs for people. That's great. You're going to have new jobs, and you're going to have new subspecialists. On the other hand, you say, wow, this health system is so inequitable. There are hundreds of thousands of Guatemalan people who don't have access to the basic forms of primary health care. Is having new opportunities for advanced heart surgeons in the country? really the direction that we need to go in. So that is the example that I wanted to share. So this is a list of the lessons that I shared with you. I'm not going to repeat them. Like I said, right now I'm writing a book on them. It's been a lot of fun. And my book, I'm focused all on the Caribbean region. The other thing I've been doing is working on some informational interventions. So I've got tools that are available for people that are thinking about decision making, including a website we built, medicaltourismandme.com. And there's different ways to follow my group. And I just finally have to say thank you to everyone I work with. I've given this presentation. like I'm the only one that's traveled. I'm the only one that's talked to people. I'm the only one that's been in these clinics. That's not true. There's a whole research group that I work with, and they're wonderful people. Thank you.